Well, as Lauren mentioned in his pastoral or in his pastoral prayer, um, you probably would have to be living in a cave not to realize that 15 years ago today, uh, our nation changed. 15 years ago today, uh, we had the terrorist attacks of 9-11, and our nation has been altered permanently. Um, Big things cause us to reevaluate our lives, to reassess our priorities. Times of duress, times of stress, times of strain, they cause us to reassess what's important to us, including our commitments. And so, in the wake of 9-11, recruiting stations filled up, even before we had identified an enemy. People said, whatever path I was pursuing, I'm changing course, and I'm joining the military. And a very early recruit, you may remember Pat Tillman, the NFL player who resigned. He was playing for Phoenix, I believe, or Arizona, and he resigned from the NFL. 9-11 is just one example of that. Of course, after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, Similar things happened. People respond to stress and strain by reassessing their lives. It doesn't just happen on the scale of geopolitics, where people decide to join the military or whatever. It happens in our personal life. Maybe you get a diagnosis that forever changed the way you look at yourself. Or maybe it's when your kids leave your home and you're finding yourself facing a vacuum. And we reassess what is important to me. Well, it was no different back in the first century either. Uh, This gospel, the gospel of Mark, which we are commencing our study of beginning this morning, was written to people who were in a time of stress, strain, and duress. It was written most likely very early during Nero's persecution of the church. The first major persecution of the church to occur. And Christians were wondering, is it worth it? Because the central claim of Christianity that butted heads with the central claim of Rome is that we affirm Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And of course, if you know your history, that was a title that Caesar usurped for himself. And Caesar tolerated no alternatives. And so because the early Christians were affirming Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and only He can claim absolute authority over my life, Caesar, I am not going to burn incense to you. It seems like a small thing. But Caesar played for keeps. And so because of their loyalty and their commitment to Jesus as their King of kings... Our brothers and sisters in the first century were persecuted terribly. And so in the midst of this strain and duress, people were having to ask themselves, am I sure that Jesus is really the King of Kings? 
Is he really worth dying for? And so the Gospel of Mark was written to address that issue. Now, we're going to look today at a few background things because I think even the story of Mark's character is instructive for us and sets the stage for this book. But bear in mind as we look through this book in the weeks and months ahead that this was written to Christians who were struggling due to persecution to answer the question, is Jesus really worth it? If you read the Gospel of Mark, you know that it's a pretty unique book. It's compared to the other Gospels, very short, only 16 chapters. You also know, if you've read the book, that he routinely uses the word immediately. He makes it sound like Jesus was on a sprint. Immediately, immediately he went there. Immediately, immediately after this, immediately. In fact, what's translated out of your English text, because it's so awkward, is the fact that in the Greek, Mark writes with present tense verbs. Now this... This is part of why we know that Mark's first language was not Greek. Um, If you've ever learned a language, or if you've ever engaged that difficult task, you know that one of the hardest things to do is to grasp verb tense, to speak in terms of future tense or past tense. And so a sign that someone is a very basic speaker of a language is that they're just using the simple present tense, which is what Mark does which is a humbling thing to consider. That here's a man whose first language was not Greek, and still God used him mightily to pen this remarkable account of Jesus in his life for the, all, for the whole Christian church. So don't think for a moment that just because your education may not be up here, that you're not usable. You can be a simple folk And God still uses you remarkably. But there's maybe some of you who need to learn a little bit more about Mark just to understand that God is not, has not put you in a position where you can't be used. You see, John Mark is not mentioned as the author of this book. So how do we know that he's the author? How do we know? If, If he's not listed as the author, how do we know that this is really the gospel of Mark instead of some other guy? Well, Two big reasons. First, the early church unanimously affirmed his authorship. Unanimously. In this book, in a few instances, you will see he names some people who were contemporaries of his. These are people who were alive when he's writing this book. So there are points of reference outside of the book who could affirm whoever the author was at the time of its writing. And the whole Christian church affirms John Mark wrote this book. But then, as I've kind of alluded to with the use of the language, as we've had the advent of what's known as textual criticism, we've been able to look at some of the internal clues and affirm, yeah, this was written in such a way or in such a place that it really does seem to corroborate the the legacy that's been passed down to us by the church. So, John Mark, the author of this gospel, was a Palestinian Jew who knew Aramaic, 
He spoke Aramaic as his first language. This accounts for its frequent use in this book. Uh, He was not a native Greek speaker, and so that accounts for his very choppy use of Greek. Uh, But he was based out of Rome when he wrote this book, and that accounts for his use of several Latin terms. His family was part of the Christian church from its earliest days. The first time we hear of Mark being mentioned in the, in the Bible is in Acts 12.12. 12. In Acts 12, you may recall, Peter is in jail, and he thinks he's dreaming because an angel comes to him and, and just leads him by the hand out of the prison. Okay? And then Peter comes to his senses, and he realizes, whoa, it was real. And he's at this house where believers are gathered to pray. And it says that the house belonged to Mary, the mother of Mark. So that's his first mention in Scripture, is that his mother is hosting the believers. So he has a legacy very early on. And then the next chapter, in Acts chapter 13, we see Mark embark on the first missionary journey of Paul. So he he comes up to Antioch with Barnabas and Paul, and he sets off on this first missionary journey. But then in verse 13 of chapter 13, something happens, and for whatever reason, Mark makes a fateful decision to, I don't want to say quit, because that may not have been the right word, but for whatever reason, he he ceases his participation in, in the missionary endeavor, and he heads back to Jerusalem. Now this very obviously angers Paul. And a few years later, when they're about to begin their second missionary journey, Paul has still not got over it. And so you read in chapter 15, verses 36 to 40, that Paul does not want any more use with Mark. He does not want to take Mark at all. Of course, Barnabas wants to take Mark. So a huge quarrel erupts between Paul and Barnabas. And much like Yoko Ono in regards to the Beatles, John John Mark breaks up the team. Um, You know, people have said, well, you know, Paul was just overly harsh, or maybe Barnabas was just this magnanimous guy. Perhaps. We do learn in Colossians 4 that Barnabas and Mark were cousins, so maybe that familial relationship played a part in why he was willing to give him a second chance. We don't know. But after Acts chapter 15, we don't know what happens to Mark for several, several years. We don't know at what point Paul and Mark or Paul and Barnabas or anyone relates anymore until we get to the epistle of Colossians where Paul is imprisoned and in chapter 4 verse 10 we just get this passing comment that Mark is there with him, ministering to him in prison. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, we have Paul's final letter. You can read in 2 Timothy. It reads like, like a letter written by a man who knows he's about to die. In 2 Timothy, he's writing to his beloved son, Timothy. Okay, the one who we read over and over again. Of all Paul's protégés, Timothy was his most precious. Okay? And he's writing to Timothy, and in chapter 4, verse 11, what does he say? He says, 
Get Mark and bring him with you to me, for he is useful in ministry to me. What a remarkable switch. Several years before, John Mark is useless to Paul. And now, by the end of his life, Mark is useful. So we have that. Now, in church history, though, the one with whom Mark is most closely associated is actually Peter. In fact, the early church pretty much took it as a given that what Mark was writing in his gospel were Peter's memories. That Peter was just was, was telling stories and Mark, not telling stories and making things up, but he was sharing memories of Jesus and that Mark was writing them. So church history associates Mark with Peter. And it was pretty much a given that the gospel of Mark were essentially Peter's memories passed on to Mark and Mark was pinning them onto paper. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter is himself in prison, we see him refer to Mark who is with him as his beloved son. So you have a guy here who's natively from Jerusalem. He's an ethnic Jew. He starts off eager. He starts off strong. He makes a fateful decision that gets him blackballed by one of the most important apostles. And this obviously affects him. But then something happens, and years later, he finds himself beloved by both Paul and and Peter. In fact, they're both imprisoned in Rome. Church history tells us that Paul and Peter were killed in relatively close proximity time-wise to each other. They were both killed early in Nero's persecution. And here we have this ethnic Jew, and as if you know your history of ethnic Jews, they were very, very, very proud of being Jews, and they didn't much like leaving Jerusalem and Israel. But nonetheless, this guy is up in Rome ministering to Paul and to Peter. Big deal. So what? Actually, I think it's a remarkably big deal. Maybe there are some here today who are in the position of a young Mark. Maybe you have started off strong and something happened and you made a mistake. You made a decision that is haunting you to this day. Maybe there are people who have written you off because of the decisions you have made. The fact that you took this guy who was a first missionary journey flunky and he becomes the author of the first gospel recorded, the second book of our New Testament, is a remarkable illustration of a great principle. And that is, always make room for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Always make room for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Mark understands so clearly that you may falter, you may fall, but the Holy Spirit who is perfectly applying Christ's work to you will not discard you. So persevere. You may have messed up. Persevere. You may have made a mistake. You may have been written off by influential people. Persevere. God is not finished with you. All right? But on the other hand, 
Maybe there are some of you here today who are in the position of Paul. You're successful. You're important. Your judgment counts. Your voice counts. And maybe you're in the position to write someone off who has failed you or, in your mind, proven themselves to be unreliable. Let Mark's story and Paul's subsequent finding him useful temper your judgment. Always make room for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. This person who you may be so tempted to write off right now as useless may end up, over time, being very precious and useful to you. Okay? Always make room for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. John Mark shows us you can have a big blunder, you can be written off, but by God's grace, you can find your place again, okay? So, but not only is his personal story instructive for us, um, his very style is telling. You see, the Gospel of Mark is written very, very uniquely. In fact, I would suggest that he writes at a very psychological level. What do I mean by that? Well, we start here and we've read how John the Baptist is there. Okay, if you've read Matthew before, you know that he begins with this great genealogy of Jesus. And, and Luke begins with this, I mean, he's so detail-oriented, he gives the birth narrative account of John the Baptist. Mark, he just jumps right in. Yeah, here's this guy named John, and boom, here's Jesus. I mean, it's just this go, go, go. It's very action-packed, fast-paced. Compared to the other Gospels, Mark records very few of Jesus' words. In fact, Luke records 25 of Jesus' parables. Matthew records 20. Mark records 7. Mark is not concerned in his book with carrying on the teaching of Jesus. It doesn't serve his immediate purpose. The Holy Spirit's going to inspire these other books that are going to round that out. Paul, or Mark, is writing at a very psychological level. You see, when you're in a period of duress, when you're in a period of stress and strain and, and trouble, and for example, perhaps you're questioning whether God loves you, or maybe you're questioning whether your spouse is committed to you, or, or, or whatever it is. He knows that what people need to be confronted with is the person. And so rather than rehash all of Jesus' great teaching that has still boggled the minds of philosophers to this day, he confronts you with Jesus doing stuff. Jesus did this. Jesus did that. You want to know if Jesus is worth living and dying for? Here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. This is Jesus. This is who you've committed to. All of this is aimed. His whole style is, in, is intended to hit us with Jesus. His, his, uh, the, I'm sorry. I've got to look at my notes now. This is what happens when you hardly ever look at your notes. Um, his... his uh, his teaching and his behaviors that led to his original audience being astonished, being awestruck, and then their opposition to him. The number one thing that Mark wants you to do, 
is be confronted with the person of Jesus in all of his claims, in all of his uh, actions, to be confronted with his authority. Because over against Caesar's claim, we have to decide, is Jesus truly King of kings and Lord of lords? The absolute central question of Mark is, who do you say that I am? Every single one of us must ask that question and must answer that question. Who do we say that Jesus is? That question is actually the very center of this book. This book has 16 chapters. The first eight chapters just build on one another. I mean, it's just action shot after action shot of Jesus saying and doing. And, and, and as people are amazed at this guy, as, as people are astonished by the way he teaches and opposition builds, people are wondering, who is this guy? And that culminates with Jesus at the end of chapter 8 asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? Which then leads to the question, who do you say that I am? Because he is the Messiah. He is the king. And then the second half of the book then, from chapter 9 through 16, basically flesh out what does it mean then for Jesus to be the king. And so we see who and what of Jesus and his kingship fleshed out for us in this book. But make no mistake about it. The question of who is Jesus is just as much a live topic today as it was when Jesus walked the earth. He causes controversy wherever he goes. Think about it. Think about the number of people who are willing to think of Jesus as some philosopher, as a, as a, as a prototypical Marxist revolutionary, uh, as a hippie, uh, what, whatever. Maybe even a genie. The growing trend among even evangelicals is to think of Jesus primarily as a buddy who wants to sit down and hear your story. The question for us is, who is Jesus? So, Mark begins in chapter 1, verse 1, by throwing it out. The beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you may think, well, that settles it. That's who Jesus is. And it does because we know the rest of the story. But remember, at the time of his writing, just saying Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, was a debatable topic. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah? After all, isn't a Messiah a king? If he is a king, why didn't he defeat Rome? If he is a king, why isn't his, why isn't his armies marching? If he is a king, why are we suffering? And son of God, well, that sounds really clear to our ears, but if you've read your Old Testament, you know that sometimes people are called son of God. Angels are sometimes in the Bible referred to as being sons of God. So what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Son of God? And so he throws it out there. The bottom line is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now I'm going to explain it to you and confront you with Jesus so that you too can come to confess Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God. And my hope and my prayer for you as we go through this study is there may be some who sat in church their whole life or some of you maybe who have had spotty attendance. I don't care. But my hope for you is that if you have not been exposed or have not encountered the person of Jesus Christ, that you will do so. That you will see as we study Mark's recounting of Peter's memories of Jesus doing these things. Only one can say and do what Jesus did. And he truly is worthy of your loyalty and affection despite all the claims and all the threats of this evil world. Jesus alone is worthy of our loyalty, adoration, and praise. And that right there will bring comfort to your soul and steadiness to your hand and your feet as you walk this troubled course. And so, he begins by saying, hey, so, as was prophesied, this. And he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What a brilliant quote that he does. Because he wants to get to the point, who's Jesus? You know what he does right here? He actually combines three passages of scripture and makes it one fluid quote. He quotes from Exodus 23. He borrows a phrase. He quotes from Malachi 3. And of course, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 41 or 40. And he puts it all together. And what does that tell you? It tells you that the promise has transcended the entire period of the old covenant. That God had prepared this plan and had implemented a plan that had been made known piece by piece from the very beginning of Israel's history. God was keeping his promise that had been made known to his people for their entire existence. This promise had been made known progressively throughout troubled and troubling times. For over 1,200 years of troubled times. And God was keeping his promise. Which leads us to a second observation. Always remember that God keeps his promise. We are so tempted when the going gets rough to think that God's promise has failed us or that God has failed. God, there are people, perhaps even here, who are in the thick of adversity and you're wondering, where is the Lord? And I bet if I asked for testifies, there would be a whole bunch of them, but the Lord is in the habit of showing up at the last minute. Can I get an amen? Very rarely. It happens, but very rarely does God show up as soon as a problem arises. That's not his style. His style, by and large, is to show up when times are desperate. In fact, that's where he meets us, is where we're desperate. You'll notice here in these words, it talks about a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And John the Baptist comes in the wilderness. In fact, if you go and look in the Old Testament, you know where God most usually meets with His people? In the wilderness. Now, 
We may think of wilderness as being this beautiful Montana mountainside that crosses over uh, Flathead Lake. Oh, that's beautiful. Or we may think of the wilderness as being the jungles of, of, of South or Central America. In the Hebrew mind, the wilderness was essentially the desert. Take the most inhospitable place where food and water are virtually non-existent, where there is no civilization, the only people who go into the wilderness are outlaws who are trying to evade capture. Where life is the absolute hardest to be sustained. And this is where God so routinely meets with his people. I believe the theological point behind that is precisely that God meets us precisely when and where we recognize that we are most desperate and in need. Think about the minute, think, keep this in mind as we look at Jesus' ministry over the next several weeks, that the people who are so oblivious to their sense of need, Jesus passes them by, doesn't he? The sick have no need of a physician. Now, was Jesus saying they weren't sick? He's pointing to their perceived lack of need. God meets you in the wilderness. Are you there right now? Your situation may be so dire that you are wondering how on earth are we going to make it. Remember from God's word that he has a habit of showing up right when things are most dire, when things are most critical, when the when the clock is running out and things were indeed dire for Israel. For over 400 years, the prophets' mouths had been quiet. It was silence. And if you read the history of the intertestamental period, it is, it is filled with drama and intrigue. You had the, the, the Persian army invaded Greece and Greece decided to use that as an excuse to retaliate. So Alexander the Great comes and takes over pretty much the whole known world. He dies, his kingdom's divided into four and then they start fighting back and forth. They oppress the Jews, they fight back and forth, back and forth. Rome decides, hey, we're getting pretty awesome. We're gonna go ahead and take over the world now too. They do. It's a crazy time. And the... Israelites, the Hebrews, are languishing under oppressor after oppressor. Where is God? And then he shows up. Boom. John the Baptist comes, fulfilling God's promise to send a messenger before the great day of the Lord. Now, John the Baptist was a big deal. We, we tend to forget how big of a deal he was. Because when he came, people suddenly, all their hopes were awakened again. Here's a prophet. We haven't had a prophet in hundreds of centuries. Decades later, when Paul goes to Ephesus, the first people he encounters are people who only knew of John's baptism. I mean, John was really influential. And what's he preaching? After me will come one who's greater than I, whose straps of his sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. Wow. So here you have the biggest celebrity, the biggest deal in hundreds of years, and his message is, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. Now think about that for a second. You and me, we fight and scratch and, 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 and plot for position. 
for recognition? Let's face it. Most of us are nobodies. We're not the biggest deal since sliced bread. All of Atlanta is not coming out to hear us preach. All of, all, and here he is. He's a bona fide celebrity. Big deal. And his message is, I'm a nobody. Because after me is coming one who is so awesome that I am not even worthy to be considered a slave. You see the illustration he uses there of, of unstrapping a sandal Everybody back in that day wore sandals that required strapping on. Caesar to the lowest peasant all wore sandals, and it was dusty roads. People's feet got really dirty. And wealthy people considered that it was beneath their station and dignity in life to touch their own dirty feet. And so they would have their servants or their slaves take off their shoes and wash their feet for them. So sandal duty, foot washing duty, was considered the absolute peon work and he's saying i'm not even worthy to do that complete self-deprecation so even from the beginning of these verses we have the gospel at work we have john a somebody who messed up and by grace is restored and he becomes a somebody in the kingdom you have a paul who initially wrote him off but by grace recognized the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and invested in him again. You have a guy named John who, though he could have claimed to have been a somebody, by grace recognizes that he exists to serve the king. You see, if you're going to come to know who Jesus is, part and parcel of that is coming to know who you are. There are too many of us who are the antithesis of John here. And we would want to say that we're a somebody. If you want to know who Jesus is, you've got to be in the place of the wilderness where you are in desperate times, where you have emptied yourself of all vestiges of self-confidence and hope. And you're able to look at Jesus as the one who can save you from everything. So, where are you today? Are you sitting in your plush castle, in your plush palace? Are you like the religious leaders who loved the positions of honor at the dinner tables? Or are you like John the Baptist, out in the wilderness, waiting on the Lord? Are you like so many who are self-important? Or are you like Mark, who recognizes that he's just a bumbling, stumbling sinner who's carried along and worked on by the Holy Spirit to be used for kingdom purposes. If we're going to be people who honor Jesus and build a community where we help each other, pointing each other to Jesus, we have got to have an attitude of humility and dependence upon grace. So as we continue to look at this book, remember the question, who do you say that Jesus is? And remember that we must start from the posture of humility, that this is not about us. It's about him and the exaltation of his name and the spread of his kingdom on this earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this message to us. We thank you that you were not done with Mark. We thank you that you were 
not done with your people. We thank you that you kept your promise to save to the uttermost those for whom Christ shed his blood. We thank you that John, the last of the great old covenant prophets, came pointing us to the right attitude to have in relation to you. And we thank you that in the fullness of time you came and that you put your authority on display so that we could find hope and rest in you, the true King. In the name of Jesus, the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.